to Heavily Pixelated. I'm your host, Scott C. Jones. Hey, how are you? Like, how have you been? You look good. No kidding, you really do. Like you, I am so tired of COVID. Are you sick? Am I sick? Are we sick together? Did you get it yet? Did you get tested? This has been going on for what, three years now? I took my first COVID test last week. Yes, my very first. It was negative, good for me, and I'm done with all of this stuff now. I want to get back to living, and I want to get busy making my show again. And so, here we are. Also, it feels a, a, a wee bit silly to be doing a show right now because of the war. I have consumed far too much news in the last 24 hours, so what I am doing is, is stepping away and, uh, and, and sharing this interview with you. This is an interview I did with an actor named Nick Harrison. Nick's more than an actor, though. He's a, he's a veritable Swiss army knife of film and television production. Uh, he's a fight coordinator. Um, he's, uh, he's also a survivor, and, and we're going to talk about that. Nick and I make some passing references to video games, but we're mostly going to be talking about Star Wars. Yes, good old Star Wars, how I love you. Or more accurately, how I used to love you. We were in love, Star Wars and I. Now, I really don't know what we are. Star Wars and I are still in a relationship, but it's a complicated relationship. But for Nick Harrison, it's not complicated at all. True story, Nick recently put on his movie-ready Darth Vader costume and took a long, leisurely walk around his neighborhood for fun. I took my R2-D2 down to uh, Starbucks and I had coffee and I just let R2 do his thing. That's Nick. And yeah, he owns his very own R2-D2. And people were... It's a life-size R2? Oh, full on. Oh it's a God. full on and uh, <laughs> totally like I had the hollows going and talking to people and people would ask me, can I get a picture with them? And I'd be like, ask him, you know, and then so <laughs> didn't break the magic. And uh, the funny part was um, when people would say, did you make him? I'm like, no, no. I said, every pilot is assigned an astromech and Luke's not using him anymore. So you got partnered with me and people Weirdo. just, they would be like, what? And then they'd what? be like so excited. But I would look at some people who would come in and just talk to him because I'd sit, I was sitting in the corner with my coffee and just sort of yeah. being, you know, as sort of like quiet as possible. Yeah, yeah. And some people just only engaged with R2 and didn't, you know, and then people would look around to see like if anyone was controlling them. And it was so magical. So that's Nick. Nick's tall, he's handsome, he's super charming and engaging. I liked Nick right away, and I think you're going to like him too. Uh, on the surface, you would look at Nick and uh, say to yourself, now there's a guy with the world at his feet. But, and this is a big but, Nick, like so many people, went to a private Catholic school growing up, and something dark happened to him in his time there. In fact, a lot of dark things happened to Nick there. And the accumulation of all those dark things, well, could have broken Nick. In fact, they almost did. Instead of letting the weight of all these dark things pull him down to the bottom of life, Nick, remarkable person that he is, chose to hold them accountable. All the people who caused him pain. He boldly chose to write a one-man show called How Star Wars Saved My Life. 
And Nick also wrote a book, an autobiography called Safe Space. It just came out. And that's what we're going to talk about today, Safe Space. And I would be wrong not to give you a warning. So this is your warning. Nick and I are going to have a fairly frank, open conversation discussing physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. We're not going to get into the specifics or anything, but we are going to talk about some tough stuff. If those subjects are perhaps triggering for you, then then you know what to do. Here is one of the bravest people I know. Here's Nick Harrison. Hey, how are you? Nick! <laughs> it's really you! I'm here. Here I am. Oh my god, it is so great to meet you. Well, it's nice to meet I've met you in passing uh, before. At, um Yeah? Yeah, I used to have a show called um, Fools for Hire, and I think I ran into you and Victor a few different times. We've, we've had, you know, some of the same friends set, too, like Pia and Dean and... You know, uh, people like that. So I didn't know you were connected, so connected to Pia and Ian. Oh, I've known them for years. I just moved back to BC. Uh, I uh, I've been friends with Sarah Deacons for a long time, and Sarah really wanted uh, wanted us to talk. I don't know why that never happened. Uh, Sarah's the producer of the podcast. And, oh, great! Uh, and so the podcast is called Heavily Pixelated, and it's it's mostly centered around. Um, how people lean on games during challenging times in their lives. And mostly what it is, is a way for me to get gamers to really open up about, you know, how mature they are and the things that they go through and the things they endure. And so, you know, every time something's gone wrong in my life, I got fired from a job or a girl broke up with me. And any, any time I was sad, I'd go buy a game, I'd play a game for three weeks and somehow I'd feel better. Was the game a distraction or did it give me something I don't really know. I'm not a scientist. All I know is like, that's what I do. I thought I was the only one who who did this kind of thing, but everybody does it. So I've had people, you know, on the show who, you know, they had a miscarriage, they lost a baby. And what did they play as a couple after that? And like, I've just had the most heart wrenching stories that, that these people have opened up and shared with me. I'm super proud of my podcast. I'm I make no money off the podcast. I just do it because I, I just believe it's, in it. It's yeah. beautiful. It's the most beautiful work of my career. And, and I also like, we're getting older. There's a lot of life behind us. And so I don't want to talk about like, are the graphics in, in the original Zelda still, do they hold up now in 2020? Like I fuck, I don't care. Like, I, you know, like <laughs> I've had open heart surgeries. I've had all kinds of pain oh my in gosh. my life. And like, wow. I I'm just happy to be here. So I saw that Pia posted uh, the cover of your book on LinkedIn. I'm not really a big oh. social media person, but LinkedIn is the one thing I do look at. And I do like Pia a lot. I said, do you, do you know, Nick? Like I would love to meet Nick. And, and, um, uh, she's like, yeah, he's been a friend for a million years. And, um, so she facilitated this. I also didn't want to give Jeff, Jeff Bezos any money. So I tried to, <laughs> uh, I tried to pay for your book. I bought it through one of the, the local store over here, iron dog books. It's a little bookstore. They ordered it and I went and picked it up and man, I just tore right through it. And, uh, oh, like m most, you know, like I had tears in my eyes the whole time. And mm. I, I, I am just, I am just floored by you. Um, I'm floored by the fact that you had this experience and and that you continued to endure for years and years and you kept so much of it inside. You lived with it for so long. And like for a little kid, 
Like that's a lot to carry. Mm -hmm. And like the fact that you, you did that, you know, like there's a fork in the road at that point. Um, Cause I, I was molested t as a kid too. And that's my own story. We don't need to go into my story too much, but like, what do you do with it? Lots of people, I was in a survivor's group for a while too. Some people don't want to talk about it ever again. And I know later yeah. in your book, you have a section where you're trying to get people to, to corroborate the story. And so you're meeting with people who also went to the same school. Um, and you just can't get like you, there's that one scene where you go and, and meet the guy at the auto dealership. Oh my gosh. That was so hard. Doing and, that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and I think, you know, I think for me too, like I didn't accept this until I was 45, like very, very late in my life. I'm like, it had always been there, you know, a million years ago. And it's like, what do I do with this? I don't know what to do with it. And I started therapy again in Toronto. And it was one of the first things I, I'm just like, there's something I never talked about. And it mm -hmm. just opened up a whole new world for me. And the fact that you opened yourself up and, and believed in yourself enough to embrace this part of your life, which is incredibly painful. Like, I don't know, I don't know, like of any greater pain in the world than what you went through. Um, and the fact that you decided to not like, steer your ship away from the storm you're like fuck i'm going into the storm i'm going to embrace well, all of this yeah i had nowhere else to go i mean and and that's the thing I, and it was star wars that shaped a lot of that for me as well because as a kid after all the years of abuse and everything that happened in that school um seeing star wars for the first time which i write about again is yeah. it's i go back to it all the time and just the wonder and the magic and the fact that a small band of these misfits right like i think i write about it in the book like you've got this walking carpet you've got this like you know jerky pirate guy yeah. smuggler you've got never this... should have worked never right? never never should have worked. uh the farm boy just wants to go and pick yep. up power converters and and they from all these different areas and different um histories come together and they take on something so organized as the empire and they stand up for what's right and you know you know hand goes away she's like you know lay a system you're just getting your reward and you're leaving and he's like i got a price on my head i got a bounty yep. and, and she's like well you know that's all just take care of yourself that's what you're good at and and he comes back yeah right and um as a kid seeing that against such great odds such a a group of people that couldn't um theoretically they should not have succeeded no. and they did that's what made it as a child it gave me hope that there was you just had to stand up for yourself and not that it made um me feel better about myself because i mean i still struggle with um uh, imposter syndrome thinking that oh my gosh like i'm not good enough i'm not worthy of this i'm not worthy of that but to feel that a group of people can stand together against something so evil and and share their stories or take them on and succeed that's for me i mean after everything that had been taken away from me what more did i have to lose and then that's the beautiful thing that you describe in your book too is is um you know you're you're at a fork in the road there uh you know all your friends are watching smoky and the bandit <laughs> You know, which yeah. is an adult movie, you know, Sally oh, Field, yeah. Burt Reynolds, like Burt Reynolds mustache. 
like it's sexy. There's cars peeling out. There's like sheriffs. Like they're they're jokes. Like it's there's adult jokes in there. Nick and I are referring to a scene in the book where he goes to a multiplex with his friends. His friends go to see Smokey and the Bandit. Nick, coming back from the food counter, impulsively decides to check out this space movie. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. no. There, I'm going to go to this other theater where this weird movie's playing. And there was a gravity around it for you that really seemed to speak to you. Can you talk a little bit about that gravity, if you can? Well, it, it was. It was because like I was a misfit. When I had left the private school and was put into the public school, I had to adapt to what public school was like. Because even mm-hmm. though I had been abused and all these things that happened to me in, in the private school, there were etiquettes there that you were forced into following, like standing up to answer questions, all these things that when I went to a private or public school, the first time I stood up to answer a question, uh, it was immediately hilarious to all the other yeah. kids. And yeah. I think day one of my first day in the new school, I was wearing my school uniform. So yeah. it was like, cause that's what you did. You wore your school blues and it immediately put me in the outlander group because also mm-hmm. these other kids had been together since kindergarten. I was this new kid. They had a history. They had a history. I didn't know anyone. Yep. So I immediately was this misfit. So I didn't fit in. And you know, finally being invited to this birthday party and going to this Smokey and the Bandit, it was like they were all, you know, it's it was a small town that I grew up in. And so they loved their trucks and they loved their fast races to buy beer or whatever. Yeah. And I was this kid who was like, I just wanted to keep my head down and not be seen. And so feeling challenged when I walked into the theater, like it was presented with that poster, it just said Star Wars. Yeah. I had never seen any of the hype or press about it because back then it just was coming out. It wasn't uh, as marketed as, as the other films were. And I just, I was thinking, what is a Star Wars? And yeah. I wasn't having fun with Smokey and the Bandit and <laughs> the E-Hine and the CB and the Breaker Breakers. And I was just, I kept going to the concession stand to get food because that's how I would yeah. feed my shame and my anxieties i would eat and so i went back to the concession stand and then i got lured in i just really did feel this compulsion to go in there like literally like a tractor beam had latched on to me and pulled me in and it was like like nothing i had seen before like sand and a gold robot and this uh, white garbage can yes. and 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 it was like and they're talking to each other and this little round thing is beeping and everyone can understand what he's saying. And I, and it wasn't, there was no exposition like this is a droid and this is what we, it was just, it was just, this is the universe you're in. This is the story. We're throwing you right in it. So I kept going back and forth and yeah. there were all these gaps and I just kept trying to put it all together in my mind. And yeah, I think it built it up even more for me for when I finally went back to, to see the whole film with my father and just sitting there and then hearing John Williams, you know, um, orchestral sure. uh, booming at the beginning. And I think I, I still have an essay I wrote in grade eight about um, John Williams and, you know, the star Wars music um, because even that was inspiring. Yeah. And 
the fact too that you had this kid that was a farm boy and again small town and i was in a small town and things he said too like wanting to get off this rock and just hating it there and Mm -hmm. he didn't fit in so i immediately in my early years related to luke and after that film, like I wanted, I didn't really know entirely what a Jedi was, but I knew that's what I wanted to aspire to be. Mm-hmm. And that set me on my path to, you know, like my creative mind. I mean, anything I could digest Star Wars mm-hmm. was, you know, it was just, I wanted to find out more. I wanted to learn if I could use the force for protection. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn what the lightsaber was and, you know, what was that was all about. So all those things as a kid, as I got older, it like you know led to me being on the british kendo team and yeah. doing kendo as a career and being a fight director so the path that i was looking at as a child um the heavy influence of star wars has led to where i am now it was in those dark moments as well just feeling you know yoda's lessons in empire strikes back about mm-hmm. the dark side and you know this draw i'd strive to be good and you know if would fail at it Mm -hmm. And then it was over time, really taking that into consideration that, you know, I'm never going to be in the light. Mm -hmm. I will at times be leaning towards the light. At times I'm going to lean towards the dark, but really for me, the concept of a true Jedi is just being able to balance yourself in between Mm -hmm. because you can't exist purely in the light or purely in the dark. Like, you know, we can dissect that and look at it from a Taoist or a Buddhist philosophy of the yin and yang or we can look at it as you know being on earth between heaven and hell or whatever you want to call it but for Mm me i like the fact that the idea of this force that is a living entity that surrounds us brings us all together but is not some man in a throne that looks down on us and then we have to like uh seek repentance for his love It doesn't seem right because as a kid i was also told that i had to earn god's love so they were able Mm -hmm. to do what they did to me using god as this sort of um chess piece over Mm -hmm. me to constantly have me being silent uh keeping the the secrets of what happened because god would kill me and my family and then when you see something about the force you know this force is there it is it just merely exists and we have the choice, but we will be responsible for our actions. Mm -hmm. So to me, it just makes so much more sense from a day-to-day point of view. Yeah, I I mean, it seems like, and it it was for lots of us. I mean, the reason why Victor's show exists is because of Star Wars. The reason why Mm -hmm. I worked in video games, why the medium of video games exists is because of, I mean, so much of the culture that I love is because of those movies. Oh Um, yeah. And I think it was a a, a carrot. They served as a carrot for all of us to be invited down a path, and we had to we had to walk that path and and find our own meaning on mm-hmm. that path. And and that's really like that's what I love most about about your book is is like you walk that same path. Um, mm-hmm. Like like I I couldn't think of anything else other than Star Wars. Like I was I'm 52 now, so I was. I don't know. I'm 69. So I must've been eight or nine years old when I saw the first one and my uncle Jack took us to the movie theater and my life was changed after that. 
Like it just was. And, and, you know, we, I grew up in a tiny little trailer in the middle of the woods. And all I did was I drew star Wars comic books every day, like very crude comic books. I had a couple books that had pictures from the movie in it and they seemed like magic to me. And the fact mm. that you can even watch these movies like on your phone or at home, like that is mind blowing. Like if I think about oh, yeah. it, but back then I just had to make my own, I had to sort of, I don't know, make my own fan fiction around Star Wars because that's right? the only way to extend it, you know, back then. Oh, definitely. And I remember uh, going on trips with my parents and any arcade that I could hit and <laughs> find the Star Wars video game. Oh yeah. my gosh, the vector graphics. Yeah, and it yeah. would be like, man, plugging those quarters in and trying to get those towers. And yeah. Man, I loved it. And I loved, again, like you were surrounded in, in mini form by that, you know, the Star Wars music. And, you know, I'd fantasize. I loved the sit-down version because I could feel like I was in an X-Wing cockpit. And I would even go so far as a kid in, in the arcade. When I sat down there, I would, you know, get ready for things to go. And I'd be like cross-checking and, and I pretend <laughs> to talk to R2 and I'd get ready, right? And it was just yeah. like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's really beautiful. I mean, the other part of your story, and by the way, I just read the part um, about your dad dying and it just made, mm. me, it made me cry. Like your book made me cry a million times. Seriously. It was so hard to re to read uh, uh, because it was so believable for me. And so much of your story, I, I personally identify with um, especially sort of the power of the Catholic church, the, the mm. awful power of the Catholic church and how revered priests were back then like they 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 were they you know they were like the embodiment of god himself like people were in awe of priests and nobody ever would have thought that priests would be capable of behaviors like this and now we learn that there's a tremendous history of this you know hippocratic oh, yeah. like it's just awful it's just we don't even know all of it and there's lots of people like your friend out there who runs the car dealership who just will never accept it. And so there's a million stories out there that we'll just never know about that people just live with that live inside their psyches that just well, cannot surface. Totally. And, you know, and that's the other thing too, is um, like the first time around when, when I, when I initially had the court case, um, people weren't talking about the abuse within the church, the spotlight um, no. events in this Boston had happened. Yeah. And so even the first lawyer that I had, um, they said to me, you're pretty young to be coming out about this. And they're like, normally you should be in your fifties or sixties. And I was like, what do you mean normally? And um, so because nobody was talking about it, the um, immediate response was, how dare you say this about a priest how dare you how dare you and immediately labeled as a liar and you know again having my uh lawyer when you have to find other witnesses or you know that's so much not pressure it's on you. again it's on you right yes like, and off. totally and so you know going to somebody at their place of work and throwing that on them i mean looking back i mean what a when I was you set up know. for disaster. Like, yeah, but who knows? You know? you're, try you're trying. Like, you, there's no, e there's no like e better path. You just took totally. the path that was in front of you. I get it. So yeah, and then so this uh, and the, the very the very interesting thing, I had been told that the case had been dismissed because I couldn't find anyone, and it hadn't been. Mm -hmm. So it sat for all these years as a dormant case, which 
as things changed and I still felt this compulsion to tell people the story. Cause I told my original lawyer, I said, I'm not going to shut up about this. I'm going to continue to talk yeah. about it. And that led me to write the paper I wrote when I was working on my PhD. Beautiful. And then it led yeah. to the uh, one person show that I did um, that Ian and Pia came to see. And then that led into the book mm -hmm. because I just won't shut up because I still feel this need to respect the child that was abused that was me as a kid and go you will be heard so anyway this this new lawyer that i have um she did the research and is like oh my gosh it, it this case was not officially dismissed so let's do it the, the ironic thing is like you know just the coincidence like the the lawsuit dropped the one day in early January, and then the next day the book came out. So it was just like, that was not planned. It just right. happened that way. Right. But um, the interesting thing with that was, unlike the last time with, you know, social media really wasn't the thing, the amount of immediate response uh, positive to me about, you know, and the support. Um, and there's some things I can't talk about, which are sure. very exciting about it as well, that the people that have spoken to me and spoken to my lawyer now, I feel slowly the voices are being heard and more voices are coming. So it's almost like, as Leia says to Tarkin, the more you tighten your grip, the more innocent star systems are going to slip through your fingers. And that's what's starting to happen. I feel that. And it, it feels um, so different now telling my story and sharing it. And I think one of the things I did with my lawyer now, as opposed to the last time, when they put out the press release, my initial lawyer just used a headshot at the time of me. So people are like, and look at this guy and he's taking on this poor old priest. So yeah, and he's I perfectly fine and he's strong and he's handsome yes, and, and he's this tall. Priest is, and, yeah. It's yeah, a withered old thing. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. they use that. So I said to this lawyer, I said, no, I want you to use the photo from the school when the abuse started, which also shows me with a black eye. And oh. so I don't know what version of the book you got, but the hardcover, there's the picture of uh, me cover. as a child. And, okay. Um, I, yeah, I, have to, I didn't even yeah. know there was a hardcover. Yeah, there's a hardcover version. Oh. Um, oh, it's right here, actually. Um, yeah, so rub in, it in, in, Nick. In the, in the hardcover version. <laughs> That's great. Um, there's this picture here. And oh. so... Uh, I have a, a black eye um, and my mom is still alive. And she said to me too, they told her um, that I had been hit by a swing. And of course that wasn't the case, yeah. but there's, you know, a documented evidence right there of like being beaten <laughs> like for school photos. Yeah. Because we use that photo, I think that resonated with people when they looked at the picture. So instead of seeing me now, they saw the child me who is was so scared just wanted to keep uh, my head down and just not draw any attention to myself you know so it's i think it's a good thing and also two people came to me that had gone to school with me because they recognized that photo whereas they wouldn't recognize me you know yeah. and um i mean every day i live with it and that's why i feel this need to see it through. I was married for you know, 28 years and 
my um, as this was getting closer and as the book was come, getting ready to come out uh, and, and no hard feelings towards my ex but she's like I can't do this again I can't go through this and I'm like yeah I know it's hard and so you know she's left and again I feel like it's once again it's like Luke in the X-Wing just going here we go I just got me but I do feel more support from those people and people like you who've read the book and 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 feel that and and understand it um so that gives me more hope too I didn't know you were separated buddy I'm sorry mm. I'm it's sorry. okay. It, but I also understand happens. I understand her point of view too. Like that's something totally. I, that I struggle with because I made a big deal about my my thing that I went through. And I'm like, okay, so this like I've done nothing but devote energy to this. I was molested as a kid and my parents didn't listen to me story. Mm-hmm. And when am I gonna outgrow that story? And one of my concerns is like, how, you know, am I ready to leave this behind? Can I leave this behind? What other stories can I tell that might be, that might be important? Like, that's an important story to tell. Mm-hmm. But I also understand, like, you know, like, I'm trying to outgrow it too. Like, there, there's right. a part of me that's still, that's still little, that just didn't get loved and protected the way that, that I needed to be loved and protected. And I, you know, like, I'm angry. I'm, I'm still angry. And I have vendettas mm-hmm. too. And, I'm just yeah. trying my best to, 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 I don't know, just accept it. And maybe just for me, like, I'm not writing a book. Like you're the bravest motherfucker <laughs> for writing this book. Like you are like, I just don't think I can do more of it. And I think it's, it's so like that, like, as I was reading your book, I was just so like jaw droppingly in awe of you for doing what you did. It is the gutsiest thing that I think anybody can possibly do after the pain that you went through and the pain that you're still enduring, even as an adult, even and now as a parent and as a, a single parent too, mm. like, it, like you are amazing. You really mm. are. Like, I'm so in awe of you. And, and I completely identify with, with, you know, we're, we're close to the same age. Yeah. But I, you know, like I experienced star Wars too, when I was eight years old and, mm-hmm. and, and like it had it like it was scotch taped together like it had an amateur kind of indie film vibe to it right and i think that totally. also that made it appealing to us as kids you're like wow these people you can like you can see their fingerprints on that film and that's one mm-hmm. of the beautiful things you can't really see the fingerprints on the new movies they're all disney disney rides now right right but back you then know, like they, they had this home it had a homegrown kind of feel to it and yes. I loved that. I loved it. I loved it. Oh, that's it. And the, and the, like the droids, the ships, everything looked like found objects, <laughs> and they looked like they were well used. <laughs> like they were, yeah. And because the, they were, you know, Seasoned. and and yeah. yes, and it wasn't just pristine. And I think that's the other uh, draw to it that I, I love is is that it was dirty and things were beat up and reused and. It just made it seem much more real. It didn't make it. It didn't seem like a space film. Yes, it took place in space, but I mean, like video games that you were talking about earlier, and, and the draw to video games for people to cope through things. And with like Star Wars and every film, it's that hero's journey. When you start playing a game, you're given your mission or whatever game it is you're playing, and you go through your objectives. You're going through that hero journey, 
even if it's like for 20 minutes a day or hours or days that you play, if you binge play or, or binge watch to put yourself in that hero journey moment, you know, and that's the thing like with star Wars and, and how my life has paralleled it a lot. It's, you know, it's, wow. I'm, you know, we are the heroes of our own adventure. It's a cliche thing to say, but it's so true. And it's so true. Ha- how we choose to, you know, like what part in the hero's wheel am I in? Am I accept? Am I accepting the call? Am I crossing the threshold? Am I in the supernatural realm? Am, am I am I in the belly of the beast? So at times, in my mind, and I think like all survivors that we do is we sometimes go back and we replay those moments and think, how would I handle it now? Of course, sometimes it's a futile thing to do, but sometimes it's therapeutic to go. This is what I would do now. And a lot of people in my case said to me, why didn't, and and this is like the worst thing I feel that people can say to a survivor is why didn't you tell someone? And it's like, you don't understand the pressure that you are given as a child when you're groomed for it. And when it happens, it's just, it's not that easy, but these, you know, these like um, armchair therapists that think, Oh, just suck it up. And it's like, it's not that easy. The other thing is, is like the Catholic Church is incredibly powerful. Like it's theater, right? I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't observe anymore. I have no interest in it. I'm not, you know, like I, I was raised Catholic. I made my first communion, everything, but right. it's, it's such powerful theater, and I forgot how powerful it is until I read your book, and mm. the part that made me remember how potent it is, is, is when you talked about like the threats of your family being murdered if you told them and Mm -hmm. and 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 like it's such a kid thing it's such a kid thing to accept that it's like wow this must be reality this guy has a cassock on and he's he's runs the school and he runs the church and he like he must know what he's talking about so therefore i can't i can't tell anybody and well that's it and the pain of you finally telling your dad on his deathbed Oh, man. oh my god I, I, that was, I was so hard nick told his father something that he hoped he would never have to tell his father and that was this that nick's court case against the catholic church had officially been dismissed i was crying so much when i read that i'm so glad you told him i'm so glad you told him when i went to the discovery um which they <laughs> And all the documents that the other lawyer had, they just couldn't find any of the discovery documents sure. from the one priest, which is kind of fun that the other, they've probably gone back to the Vatican because I think they took a bunch of them away. Anyway, yep. you know, my dad was in the first Canadian parachute battalion. You know, he was, I had an older dad and um, he drove me to that discovery. And on that second day, you know, he's, and he was a quiet man. He was funny as hell. And just a great nature, but he never talked about his experiences in World War II. I found out more about him when he died at his funeral about shit he did than yeah. <laughs> than he ever told me. When he dropped me off, he said, you know, and I still think about it sometimes. He said, um, I wish you had told me back then. I, I said, I know you couldn't. I know you weren't able to, but I wish you had. And then he said, because I would have been out of jail by now. <laughs> and it was I just like, that line. yeah, it's great. And I know, like, I could see if if I had told him, he probably would have gone and he probably would have shot them. 
You know, I, mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, that seems logical to me. Like you're a parent now. I'm not a parent. I don't mm. know what that's like. I don't know, like that kind of love that you feel for your kids. It has got to be the most powerful kind of love there is. And mm. again, I, I don't, you know, like we're talking about you today, but like for, for, for me, I, I did tell my parents and I asked them for help. Right. And, and, they, and they, they, they were like, you're crazy. Like that man is a nice man. He would never do anything like that to you. And so like, I went, I went to them thinking like, this is the right thing. When I'm in trouble, I will ask them for help. But like, if you had asked your dad 35 years ago, you don't know what his answer would have been. Like, you don't know. Yeah. Like, he was a young guy. Like, you know, like my parents were kids. They were like in their twenties and they were like this weird Vietnam veteran who lived in the woods behind us. It's just like, no, he's a good man. He's a nice man. We love him. I'm like, no, he's terrible. I need help. Right. I had like such despair at an early yeah. age because of that. So we don't really know what our parents are going to do, you know, and we don't no. know, you know, like, yeah, yeah. There's part of me that was just wishing, like, please just ask them, ask them for help. Tell them, tell, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell somebody. And right. but I also completely understand the psychological, you know, mechanics of you just keeping it to yourself. Well, and then that was the thing, like when my mom, uh, it was that spring morning when she was like, you know, I'm wearing long sleeves and pants and she's like, put on yeah. shorts and a T-shirt. And I had been whipped, like, you know, my uh, my grade four teacher had whipped me um, just that Friday before. And so I had all these welts. And so as a kid, you know, here I am in grade four going, oh, my gosh, if mom sees these, she's going to want what is going to happen. But then there was a moment when I was freaking out of my room, hesitating, putting on the, you know, warmer or cooler clothing that um, I was like, wait a minute, she's not a priest. Here's a kid mm -hmm. kind of going through everything that he's been told and then realizing, oh, she's not a priest. Mm -hmm. I can tell on her and it'll be okay. It mm -hmm. should be okay. And it was like, that was like that Indiana Jones moment, right? Of like yeah. the idol and then the, the sand and just going, oh, do I do it? Right. And right. when she saw it, I mean, that was the thing too. I, I went out there into the backyard after I changed and it was just that thing, just that look, she turned around and she saw me and immediately her reaction, I just started bawling because yeah. she knew this was not an accident. I had to tell her. And then she immediately, like, I still remember her on the phone with one of my main abusers, you know, uh, who was the principal and just yelling at him. And he had asked her, to keep me in the school for a few more months so they could get their grant money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And I still have a scar on my chin uh, for where the same guy threw me down the stairs, the stairs uh, yeah. just, you know, uh, like a month or so before. I was pretty convinced when I look back on it that I'm sure there would have been an accident and if I had been sent back. Because some of the kids, and you talked about it being Catholic, some of the kids who were um received the strap or beatings when they went home because they were catholic uh families you know they would be told what happened by the principal mm -hmm. and their families would continue to punish them mm -hmm. so it was bad enough that they got something at school but their parents would beat them more like in, in the sense i was yeah. lucky in that my parents weren't catholic so i didn't get that when i went home but yeah. man it was a heavy burden to carry
The other sort of observation I had as I was reading your book was that there were uh, also some uh, indigenous kids in sort of in the yeah. periphery and in the background. And like, there's a part of my heart that will forever be broken because I know that those fucking kids have stories too. And yeah. we'll never know those stories. Who knows where those kids are and who knows what happened to them. And I just mm -hmm. like, as I saw them, they, they just, they're sort of show up in, in a meeting early in the book. And you're just like, my, I was just, I could just feel their presence. And yeah. I don't know if that was intentional on your part, why you included them in the scene, but man, like it, it's, it's far beyond the boundaries of just, of just you. Like it's, well, it's big. It, it shows how massive um, the abuse was with the church. Part of the reason of that was like, I remember, I still think about those two kids in, in our, in our living room uh, speaking in their, uh, in their language. And, you know, um, the, the father that was there just yelling at them. I'm just, it was, and they were terrified. Oh, yeah. um, it's funny. Uh, my dad had um, shared a story that my mom told me that I hadn't heard, but he ran a barge, uh, you know, uh, back, you know, I guess in the sixties and fifties and stuff. And one, so he was chartered one day to, uh, and by a group. And so he picked them up and it was a bunch of priests and nuns and RCMP officers. And he was doing a run to a, uh, a secluded reserve. I think it was Tekla. I'm not, I can't remember exactly which mm -hmm. reserve it was, but he went there and, on the return, they had all, they basically went, did a swoop. They went in there, they grabbed the children, they put them on the barge. And my, my mom says, my dad felt sick to his stomach. And he was like, the kids were just bawling and crying because they'd just been basically stolen from their families. Now my dad was the barge operator and he was, didn't, he didn't know this was happening. Like they never told him this is what was going on. And he was trying to like, you know, uh, make the kids laugh as he would try to do. And it, and it was just, he was disgusted. He was so disgusted. And I think that was when he, uh, finally stopped He's like, I can't, he was so mad and so angry at what he saw. So many stories that have to be told and so many of them that will never get told because they've been buried or silenced. Yeah. Yeah. And the, one of the reasons I put it in my book is to drive home the point to, the average reader that especially canadian reader because we have this very interesting thing in canada um where we try to be um if we kind of diminish the extent of something so we can feel comfortable then it's easier to digest and mm -hmm. i think you know i see a lot of people talking about the residential schools and mm -hmm. by God, they, they need to be more and more needs to come out about that. But a lot of people only focus on that and they don't put it together that the priests who taught and were involved in residential school atrocities and genocide and beatings and rape, as those schools were being disbanded in the 60s and 70s and 80s and into the 90s, they were then also teaching in private schools and churches. Mm -hmm. So the monsters that maybe buried some children were responsible for other people's kids' education. And that just shows the extent of how they could just go from one thing to another. And, and that I find is a huge problem with the Catholic Church is 
it's a it's like a, a great place for people to hide because mm-hmm. you go to one place something happens the bishop just moves you to someplace else and maybe you change your name so you know father o'leary now becomes father o'donovan or something mm-hmm. and you, and it, you can't track them mm-hmm. and they're protected and you get these like old men protecting them and you think like what is with that it's so messed up so part of that is to to show that it was you know um it was happening it was it was really unfortunate because i never saw those kids again i don't know what happened to them Fuck. um you know and especially with everything that's coming out yep. who knows uh my half sister said something really disturbing once too um to my mom because she was also abused in the school um but she became a drug addict uh but she made the comment to my mom at one point said yeah but you know a lot of those schools have big incinerators too and it was oh, this idea fuck. that there may be so many buried you don't know how many were burned and it's like you know so boy, you just don't know. oh boy oh boy jesus christ this is the darkest fucking conversation <laughs> i mean like all this stuff is real like this is real you yeah. had your experience i had my experience there's so much pain out there in the world You tried to sell this book for a while. Yeah. You sent it to regular yeah. publishers. Tell me a little bit about the marketing challenges. Oh my gosh. Okay, so tell a story yeah. like this. So when I had read I sent it, I had a few um some of the you know mainstream publishers were like, Oh, well, let's we will be happy to read your sounds like an interesting story. They read it, they they came back and it was like, This isn't for us. Or yeah. no, we don't want to touch this. Um in addition to that, here's another how things are. Um, I in in Tawasin in this small town, they have the local papers, right? So yep. every week they do a little thing about a local author. A new author has written a book about the trees of Tawasin or something about you know um, the sparrow, and uh, someone's sure. written a, a story about you know Mary Sparkle Pants, and it's a great oh what a great author buy the book here. So I reached out to the editor and. Um, and they had done a story because I like during COVID when it first was going on, I because I, I'm in a few cosplay groups like the 501st, the Rebel Legion, and I've got these, you know, I love doing stuff for charity. I would just go around and I would do the 10K walk around in costume, mm-hmm. never revealing who it was. It's just so like, you know, you go out one day and why is Vader just walking down the street or why is Chewbacca just, you know, wandering around? Yeah. Um, and it, so it was, I was the Star Wars guy. So it kind of was, and I kind of talk about that in the book, just kind of, you know, um, trying to like do something with it. But the editor was like, I said, hey, you know, here's the book. It's starting to get some traction and uh, it would be great, you know, because I am a local author. And his response was one sentence, uh, we're going to pass on that. Mm-hmm. Just like that. So wait, he never read the book? No, he never read it. And I'm just going to make sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, take yeah, your time. Please. Yeah. Oh, do you want to take that and talk to mom in the other room? Hi, mom. Yeah, sorry. It's my, my ex calling. Um, but um, when you got to go, Nick, that's okay. We, no, can no, also, no. we can meet again, too, on another day. No, it's really, this is fine. Okay, it's okay. totally fine. Keep going no, then. he never read it. He never read it. And yeah. um, fuck you, man. Yeah, right. And it was just like, he has no clue what it is about. And it is a hard read. But I think stories like this, as difficult as they are, 
and it's not entirely depressing. There's hope in there. There's humor. You know, I, I don't just uh, rip out my heart entirely. <laughs> I kind of put it back a little bit. But, um, but dude, I can't remember keep... a book that I've read that made me cry so much as your book. Well, that's, uh, I think it's good. You I know, think and crying I, is good. Like, I don't think it's yes. bad. It's, I, I yeah. think it, we, we don't do it often enough. And so I was grateful. But, mm-hmm. but most people, they think it's bad and they don't want to do it. And they, they don't want to accept the re- the reality, the ugly reality I, that we live you with. See, and that's, that is, that's what has to change with people. Because we, we get so polarized and just, I only want this. Like, you know, um, like my ex is, you know, always tries to see the, you know, the, the best in people. And I always find the darkest, you know. <laughs> and, of course and so, you do. How and could I you think not? Yeah. yeah, right? And I think it's beautiful to have that kind of an outlook, to just look at only the positive side. And that's wonderful. But until we address the evil or the stories or the pain and the suffering that is still out there, it just becomes a veneer on our surface and to be um i'm not saying that my ex is not a whole person because of course she is um but i mean that i I find that people like this editor it's like when you're only focusing on the you know vinyl wall appliques you know that you put on their inspirational quotes you know like um and you're not looking at the suffering that's out there or people that are barely hanging on um what are you really looking at people like this editor with my book they just look at oh abuse no we don't want to talk about that as opposed to hey this is also an inspirational story and this is stories that need to be told it's only one of countless you know others out there that should be told and hopefully this story will pave the way for others to come forward and whether it's at a, a coffee night or whether it's a book or whether it's a movie about someone else's experience the more we tell these stories, um, I think the more we can learn from them. And I find that the resistance of people not to look at them or not to read them, it, it's it doesn't it just does a disservice to humans. And I think it's up to you, people like you. I'm not putting all the pressure on you for mm. God, you know <laughs> you've had enough pressure put on you over the course of your life. But we, we do need to change that. We need to right? change that. You need to change that. And I need to change that. But I'm telling you, like, I did three episodes of my podcast where I, I traveled back to my home in upstate New York and I confronted my parents and I broke mm. it up over three episodes. Those are the least listened to episodes of my podcast. People right? really dislike this shit. They dislike it. They don't want to listen to it. They don't want to hear stories about it. They don't want to acknowledge that it's real, that it exists. And mm-hmm. I feel like, like until we get over that, until we stop pushing it away, it's still you're just making it more powerful. You're making well, it more taboo. It. Exactly. The more you hide it away and don't talk about it, right? It's you know, it's like the, it's like in Canto. We don't talk about Bruno. You know what? Bruno's going to show up. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. the more you don't talk about Bruno, he's going to be there, even if he's wearing go away green. It's it's, it's the same thing. He was coming for you. Nick here is referring to a Disney movie where there is a character who is, he's like a weather forecast for bad things. He's like a harbinger. And his name is Bruno. To talk about Bruno, to even make a casual mention of Bruno, is to invite those bad omens into your life. 
And so out of paranoia and superstition, no, we don't talk about Bruno. Going back to the, the, the thing about the publisher, so they didn't want to touch it. So again, because I've got this drive to go, I need to tell my story. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to self-publish. And self-publishing can have a negative stigma to it, although it's changed a lot because yep. unlike um, in the past where it would be like, you know, a great aunt publishing her poetry for when she was 12 and is like, okay, you <laughs> got 25 copies. Great. You know, we'll take your money and publish it and call it a book. Um, it's, it's because it's just like the, it's, it's like the, it's like a remnant of the movie studio where you've got, you know, back in the thirties and forties where it's like, you know, we've got these movie studio twenties, right. You know, it's like, we're, you know, you're on an exclusive contract. We're only going to do these picks. You'll never work in this town. And, you know, it's the same with like the big publishers. You've got yeah. your big authors who make a lot of money. Yeah. You get occasional new authors that somehow break through and but the publishing house the, the publisher can go we're only going to print 100 copies you've signed a contract we have the rights you're getting 25 cents a book yep. and we're going to decide how many times it gets reprinted and it can just be shelved away and so i like the idea of writing something about um the, my story of what happened but having the control to go Oh, you don't like it? You don't like that there's 25 copies? Well, you know what? Now there's 100 copies. Oh, you don't like that? Now mm -hmm. there's 500 copies. Mm -hmm. You know what? I can say when there's going to be more. Mm -hmm. And and just like to just go, I'm not shutting up. And to have that kind of control. And then the other part of it, too, is I'm sure that a lot of publishers are like, you're writing about Star Wars? Don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know they're going to sue you. And it's like, I had written to... Um, Kathleen Kennedy, who mm -hmm. I'd worked with on yep. Snow Falling on Cedars, and a lot, even when I was doing the one-person show, and I would write to them, and I'd say, this is what I'm doing, and they never would respond. Mm -hmm. You know, they would just ignore. And I remember telling one of my friends, they said, oh, they're doing you a favor. It's a don't ask, don't tell. When you read the book, you know, it, it wouldn't take long for people to see that I'm not creating a new Star Wars story. I'm. It's basically an homage to George Lucas and the power of of the franchise so i felt that um self-publishing for me i was able to control how it looks mm -hmm. what's inside of it and it was weird too like as you know i thought i'm never going to be able to afford to do a book you know uh people came forward like i was like i don't know about doing a cover for a book and pia's like i'll do your cover mm -hmm. and it's like this is pia fucking gara yeah, it's great. Right? It's like yeah. she's famous. Pia Guerra, for those who don't know, is an artist, a truly fantastic artist. Pia has done all sorts of amazing things over the course of her career, but she is most famous for her work in Why the Last Man. I didn't want to call the book um, uh, How Star Wars Saved My Life because that was the name of my play, but I thought it doesn't it doesn't stick it seems it's too bulky and it was of course ian that was like safe space the ian who nick is referring to is ian boothby ian is a writer and actor and comic and ian also happens to be pia guerrera's partner yeah I'm like, oh my god that's a great name and then i was like well i need an editor i can't afford an editor and then it was another friend of mine that had finished in as as a book editor and uh, had known her for years as a stage manager said i'm going to edit your book and i'll do it for free i'm like are you kidding me are you serious? Do you know what you're in for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do it. So it just seemed like as 
I was confronted with the big publishers going, no, 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 we don't want to look at this thing. All of a sudden, I had, like Star Wars, I had a small ragtag band of people coming together <laughs> going, you know, uh, it felt like between that and Lord of the Rings, like, and my pen, <laughs> you know, and my ink. And, and it was just like, you know, you shall not write. And it yeah. became this uh, really cool thing of like working together. And, yeah. and, and they were doing it because they believed in it and felt the power and the need for the story to be told. Like Pia, I don't know if you've spoken to her much about it, but she's like, this is a fucking story that needs to be told again and again. She's a huge advocate for it. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately um, is the fact that the way we demonize, um, and I don't know if you're ready to hear this, but the way we we automatically demonize child molesters we just do yep. like they're they're garbage they're monsters yep. they're just we you know every time there's that catch a predator thing the dateline oh, yeah. thing like we all like these guys like what is wrong with and everyone just sits there like scratching their heads like like get, look at these monsters get them out of there we just have to get them out of our lives and i'm just like we can't just call them monsters and turn away we have right. to understand where they're coming from and why they feel this way and why they well, they're behaving this way you know i just watched I watch this show on Netflix called Cheer, and it's about these two little small colleges in, in Texas, and it's a reality show. Uh, one of the guys from the first season turns out that he was he was um, grooming mm. kids on uh, Instagram. And so, like, everyone's just like, no, Jerry is a monster. We can never, Jerry's out. That's the end of him. And he was one of the most fascinating characters on the show. And all of a sudden it's just like, no, he's a monster. Now I'm like, like, let's try to understand these people. Like, why does he feel this way? Like, like, right. let's, let, let's ask him questions and let's, let's, let's give like, let him speak and don't just mm -hmm. cancel him and turn our backs. I don't know if you agree yeah. with that or not. No, but you know what? I, I, I know what you're saying because abuse can be cyclical, right? So what happens to you as a child, if it, if it goes, you know, and this is just generally speaking, obviously there's many more con components to this. So this is a very generalized thing, but it's like people who um, have been abused, if left unchecked or without uh, proper work can lead to them when they're of age, becoming the next abuser to someone else that can mm -hmm. perpetuate and go, and carry on so it's important i think to um people like that to get help and treatment you know and um but i think institutions that allow it to perpetuate and turn a don't ask don't tell i or or even help shelter mm -hmm. um that's that for me is the huge problem it's when the institution allows it and perpetuates it and that is inexcusable. But the people that uh, have gone, you know, that may be um, grooming or abusing, for me, I honestly feel with what happened to me, yes, there was obviously sexual gratification for the priests. But I think it was way more than that for them. That was a sense of power. Like they were exerting power. Mm -hmm. And Again, when you have an institution that doesn't allow for marriage and it's just like, it just sets it all up to, it's just, there's a lot of bad things there in the setup. But I do feel that um, we need to educate people and we need to find treatment for people, both survivors and 
and perpetrators to help because we can't just focus solely on the victims. Otherwise, it's just going to continue because unless we address the root cause and get yeah. to it and find out why it's happening, we're going to keep this is going to continue on. I'd rather just be an anecdote in history, you know, a thousand years from now to go, well, there was a part of time when this happened. We don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I, w- I hope that one day that it is true. But unless we do that, it's just going to continue. But if you could, if you could say, like, uh, if you could say something to somebody who's holding your book in their hands in a bookstore and trying to decide if they're going to buy it, like, wh- what would you say to them? How would how would you convince them that this is something worth reading? Oh my goodness! Um, wow, that's a that's a difficult question. I would say probably this isn't every person's story. I'm not a famous hockey player. I'm not um, a celebrity. I'm a kid who came from a small town. Uh, and I would say we are all children of the force and maybe you will know someone or maybe you yourself and you're not alone. And to just know that in the vastness of the universe, you look up in the sky at night and just see how dark it is. And yet there's all these little specks of light. It just feels like maybe we're just those specks of light that just need to chart between each other and find that connection in that vast vacuum of space. I don't know. Um, That's beautiful. Well said. Well, thanks. Just came to me. So you're very articulate. Um, Well, you really are. I can't believe that you had the guts to tell this story. I'm so proud of you for doing that. Oh. And it's it's just the hardest thing in the world. And you did it. And and I just really, I, I hope you feel really good, really good about the fact that you you got this done. Oh, Scott, thank you. I mean, uh, that means so much to me. Honestly, thank you. It, it yeah, it was a labor of uh, pain and suffering and love. Special thanks to Nick Harrison. Nick, you are a brave man, my friend. Hey, if you'd like a copy of Nick's book, go to books.freezenpress.com. You can find one there. Also, thanks to Pia Guerrera and Ian Boothby. They're the ones who made all of this happen. The executive producer of Heavily Pixelated is Sarah Deacons. Technical producer is Stephen Nikolic. If you would like to do something, but you don't know exactly what to do, Nick recommends going to a website called Snap Network. It's snapnetwork.org. Snap is an acronym for Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. There you can find out more information, get support if you need support, or you can make a donation. Again, that's snapnetwork.org. Searching the promised kiss.
fun, it's you I really miss A piece of sweet and slow release And with the time that passes away I recognize my whole blindness My ceaseless walking on the moon Just to find another kiss Searching another kiss Searching another kiss Step on the other side to leave the bad line. 